Hey, this is Peter with a word about today's show. I just want to do a good job of setting it up for you. This is Sophia Chang, uh, who's got a really interesting career, a lot of different stuff. Uh, in particular, she worked with some early hip-hop folks that I'm fond of, namely members of the Wu-Tang Clan. We talked about how she got into that business, and just as importantly, how you might break into the music business or some other industry you've always wanted to get into. Now, here's my chat with Sophia. <laughs> this is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. That person you may have heard laughing just now is Sophia Chang. Welcome, Sophia. Thank you for having me, Peter. Oh, you've got I awesome love your energy. last name, by the way. I'm stuck with it, so I'm glad you like it. It's are you related at all? No one knows. Then it's a yes, as far yeah, as I'm concerned. We can we can go yes. Okay, good. And I'm, um, you know. I don't know if there's any other any other similarities and the relationship may be through like subletting in Prague, but I'm just gonna shrug. <laughs> Are you related to anyone famous? I am other than myself? No. Okay. Let's tell people who you are in okay. case they don't know. Okay. Um, do you want to just tell people what you, about your book? I would love to. First, thank you. First, you are an author. Do we call you an author? Yes. We call me an author, which I only came to only a couple of years ago. My name is Sophia Chang. I'm the baddest bitch in the room. And can, I, you can't tell this because you're not in the room with me, but, but Sophia is wearing a T-shirt that says <laughs> she is the baddest bitch in the room. She always has a jacket which says she is the baddest yes, bitch in the room. I'm a, I'm my walking sandwich board. Um, I am a Korean-Canadian. I call myself a matriarchitect. Do you like that? That's good. I like that, too. Thank you. I've never heard it before. I am most well-known for my association with Wu-Tang Clan. I managed all three three-letter <laughs> members of Wu-Tang, which is ODB, God rest his soul, Jizza and Rizza. I also managed Q-Tip, A Tribe Called Quest, Raphael Sadiq, and D'Angelo. To me, some of the greatest talent in the world. Um, and I am here to tell my story. And you've told your story. I have. It's Normally, I bring the book in when I interview an author. I cannot bring a book in to show people. Right. Because it's only an audiobook form. It is only an audiobook. It's only um, on Audible. And I knew that I wanted to do an audiobook. As soon as I spoke to my editor at Audible, the first thing out of my mouth, Peter, was, can I have Method Man in my book? Wait, I want to back up just just let's, because I do want to talk about Method Man and RZA and Jizza. They're all in, they're all in, yes, in they the audiobook. Are. But why is this an audiobook only? Because I knew that I could do something with the audiobook that no one else had done before. Because I really like doing things that are subversive. I don't know how many audiobooks you listen to, but you've never heard one like mine. And, no, I had not. And, and nobody. To be fair, I mostly listen to whatever my kids are listening to. So there's a lot of— <laughs> How old are your lot, kids? They're, they're 11 and 9, so okay. it's a lot of—it's uh, very specific. None of them have RZA or JZA or Method Man. <laughs> so essentially, I did—when when it occurred to me that I could do something— Original, that I could do something that would completely. So, you, do you speak French? No. Okay. So, that I could do something that would bouleverser, which means turn upside down the audiobook yep. industry. I was like, that's what I want to do. So, I have, I have, no one has ever done this before. I have the author's voice, 25 guest voices, original music, sound design, and also licensed music. So no one's ever licensed music before for an audiobook. And that was an interesting process because going to the publishers and the master's rights holders, they were like, I don't we, How does this how work? do how do we do this, right? What kind of a license is it and stuff? So I knew that I wanted to do this as a 360 
experience, so immersive is, experience. This is your life story. It is my life story. Written by you. Written told by me. By you, voiced by me. Yeah. Cameos from yes. some of the famous people you have yes. worked with over the years. Yeah. And I was just telling you, I indeed have listened to it. I had to accelerate my listening to you. I was on a short time So do time I sound frame. like the chipmunks? You sound like Sophia Chang, just faster. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you want to listen to yourself to xing <laughs> But, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who listen to podcasts like this at fast speeds, which I think is bananas. But God bless you as long as you're downloading and listening, however you want to listen. Interesting. I don't care. Huh. That's interesting. So my when I came to your book, I thought, all right, this is a woman who was in hip-hop in the era that I loved hip-hop. The golden era. Late 80s, early 90s, happened to be also when I was in college and high school. And and then you then I sort of tapped out of, of I did too. Um, good, so I don't feel quite so bad. One of the reasons you stop listening to new music, right, is you get older. Yeah. And your brain freezes. But I also liked hip-hop in that era. What was special about hip-hop in the late 80s and early 90s if you weren't there and weren't listening to it? What's different about that music than hip-hop today? I think that it was more diverse. I think there were more varied stories being told. Now, I am not someone—I I can't really speak to what the current hip-hop scene is. I am no—I no longer have my finger on the pulse. And—but I also simultaneously am not someone who indicts— the current hip hop and says, "Oh, it's just not better, as good better, as whatever it used to be." Rah, rah, rah. Yeah. Uh, but it was I, different. It was different. I think that we necessarily grow out of hip hop. I'm a 54 year old mother of two grown teenagers. I think it would be really weird if I sat here and said that if you like their music, that that yeah, that rap caviar provides the music that feeds my yeah. soul and speaks to me really deeply. Um, and it, it has nothing to do with the music. I moved on. Yeah. You know, you just, I, I just think you age out of hip hop. I think that hip hop, more than any other genre of music, is youth focused, meaning it's by the young, about the young, for the young. I don't think we can name another genre like that unless it's like, I guess, boy bands, but that's not a genre in and of itself. That's a subgenre of yeah. pop music. I mean, there's something specific about late 80s, early 90s hip hop where it's very sample heavy. Sometimes the samples were cleared. Yes, that many of them remain uncleared. Right, so that business has changed now, right? It's now it's very hard. You, there's no way you can just go lift a uh, Steely uh, Dan, Steely Dan, yeah. uh, a Steely Dan snippet, and then put it in the song, and then shrug later on when Steely Dan gets <laughs> right. Angry Astro, at you. you know that whole thing about ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. No, and I, you know, when I think about it, Peter, did you like Public Enemy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think they'd get signed today? I have no idea. I don't think they would. I have no idea. I absolutely don't think that a group that comes out with an album called It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back that has another album called, well, they're called Public Enemy. Yeah. Their logo is, you know, is them in a crosshairs, right? Or Fear of a Black Planet. I mean, to me, Public Enemy is one of the greatest groups of all time. And I don't know that a major label today would give them a deal. I don't know if X-Clan or Brand Nubian or Poor Righteous Teachers, I don't know if they get signed. I don't even know if A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, and Jungle Brothers would get signed. I think that the landscape is really different. Back then, the scene was small enough and it was nascent enough that the, I guess what I would call the barriers to entry were different. I mean, now there are kind of no barriers to entry when you consider digitization. Right. You pop up your thing on SoundCloud. Exactly. You could just 
hey, let's make a Peter, let's put this on <laughs> this afternoon. But I think that when hip-hop inevitably became a global commodity, and, you know, a few years ago, I think Billboard, somebody published that it was now the dominant, you know, musical yeah. genre in terms of uh, income, which I actually think probably happened a long, long time ago. Uh, I, I think that the constraints on it got more tight. I want, I want to talk to you about how you got into the business, because I think some of that wouldn't be replicated today, and some of it is probably still useful for people who are trying to figure out how to get into an industry they, they care about. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you're Korean-Canadian. Korean-Canadian, born and raised in Vancouver. You pretty much just took yourself to New York, right? I did. You said, I want to go to New York. So that, par- that part has not changed, right? Right. You want to get involved in something, sure. you go to the place where it's happening. Yes. Yeah. But you didn't know you wanted to get into hip-hop or music or music management when you moved here, right? Right. I was kind of drawn to music, but I didn't know that that was, you know, that's the chamber that I want to enter. I didn't necessarily know that. But it was certainly the thing that I was drawn to. Um, so, you know, I met Joey Ramone. Before I moved here, he introduced me to Legs McNeil, a legendary rock critic. And, and you, I, you just you just gloss over, but you meet the Joey Ramone from the Ramones at CBGBs. According to you, you just walked up and started talking. At the Ritz, which is now called Webster Hall. Yes, yes, I saw him, and I thought it was Johnny Ramone, and I walked up to him, and I stuck my hand out, and I said, Hi, I'm Sophia Chang. You're Johnny Ramone, aren't you? And he said, so lesson one, I'm move Joey. to the place. Move to the place, number two. Go up and this, to Joey Ramone and say hi. <laughs> this is the lesson that I say to my mentees and that I say to everybody out there. Network, network, network. And I know that it's a term that is used and overused and has kind of become this almost meaningless catchphrase. But that was my first networking move. And you did, did you know you were networking? No, nope, you absolutely. You were just meeting a rock star. I was meeting a rock star. I was like, yay, even though I was meeting the rock star. I wasn't meeting the exact one that I thought. And so so then it goes from Joey Ramone to Legs McNeil to Legs' girlfriend Carol, and Legs' girlfriend Carol works for the tour managers for Paul Simon. They need an assistant, and she gets me a job. So they're all the, so there is a one long thread that goes through many needles. And this is you showing up without references. 1987 with nothing, with a French lit honors degree. You have you you know some French, wait, and you've got a crummy a series of crummy apartments in New York, but no one's connecting you. You are making your Peter. Own were my apartments crummy? According yes, they to were. you in your book, <laughs> yes, they According were. According to your audio book, yeah, no, yes, which they I've were. Um, thank you. So I worked for Paul Simon, and I think the greatest gift of working at Paul Simon, other than being adjacent to genius, is that I met Michael Austin, who is my one of my closest friends and my mentor. Michael Austin is the son of the legendary Mo Austin, the greatest record company man that I think has ever lived, who f- founded Reprise Records with Frank Sinatra and then went on to be the chairman of Warner Brothers Records. And as well, I met Lenny Warnaker, who was the president of Warner Brothers. And so again, this is a network, right? And I think that essentially what happens when Michael takes me in, when Michael and the Austin clan take me in, it means that they thoughtfully grant me access to their network. Now, their network is... Everyone. It's everyone. And it's and it's Hollywood, their music business and Hollywood royalty. They never behave that way. They would never call themselves that. But their access and their network is tremendous. So again, move to New York. Yes. Meet Joy Ramone. Yes. Start working for Paul Simon. Yes. And then you get taken under the wing by this family that has access to everyone. Yes. So that sounds really easy. But on the other hand, folks like the Austins, right, have people coming to them all the time, I assume, asking for favors, asking for entree, asking yes. for an yes. introduction. Yes. 
How do you get that? You know, I asked I asked Michael that recently. I said, you know, Michael, I know that I'm not your only, I'm sure I'm not the only person you mentor, but I have to ask you, and this is a question I asked of Wu-Tang as well, which we'll address later. Why did you choose to mentor me? And he said, you know, Soph, I just thought you were, other than liking you as a person, we have a similar sense of humor and we love food and everything, I just thought you were terrifically talented. And so in speaking in general terms to what I would advise your listeners, one is to network and do not be afraid of going up and meeting somebody and saying, you're Peter Kafka, right? My name is Sophia Chang. So what's the worst thing that could happen? Maybe Peter's having an off day. Maybe he doesn't feel like talking to you and he kind of, that's the end of the conversation. Okay, but what's the best thing that could happen? Maybe Peter thinks it's something, oh, wow, that's a cool T-shirt. What does that mean? What's the baddest bitch in the room? And then you and I start talking, and I say, well, it's blah, 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 blah. And you say, Sophia, come on my show. Right. It's basically zero cost. There's a little bit of, you might feel bad. That's it. So if the worst thing that happens is that you're a little bit humiliated or disappointed, if that's as low as it can go, but there is no limit as far as I'm concerned to how high it can go, and the opportunities that it opens. So I will say to everybody, number one, always introduce yourself first and last name, especially if you have a last name like yours. That's a good one, yeah. Always, because people will remember you more. And they will. And I also think there's a sense of kind of authority in introducing yourself. I always say my name is Sophia Chang. Just keep going. And I know, look, everybody doesn't is not as outgoing as I am, doesn't have my Kevlar level of confidence, but I promise everybody that it gets easier and easier and easier. And you never, and again, you just never know where those conversations could take you. So I moved to New York. I meet Michael Austin. He introduces me to a legendary record producer named Russ Teitelman. Russ Teitelman introduces me to Peter Kupke, who works at Atlantic Records. I get hired as an assistant there. But in the meantime, Peter, I'm going out all the time. And I'm going to the hip-hop clubs. Now, in the late 80s and the early 90s— Because you wanted to listen to hip-hop. Because I was totally into hip-hop. Because I heard the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five in 12th grade, and it completely turned my head around and opened me up to an art form and a culture that I thought was incredibly vibrant and vital. So I'm going to these hip-hop clubs, and in the hip-hop clubs in those days, every single sector of the industry was present. So you have the MCs, the DJs, the graffiti artists, you have the B-boys, but you also have the managers, the attorneys, the publicists, the agents, the A&R people, everybody. So we're this really close, but not closed, right? It is not an insular community. It is a very inclusive community. We are this very close-knit community, and it's there that I meet Sean Karasov, God rest his soul, a.k.a. the captain, who did A&R, which is being a talent scout, at Jive Records. He said, Sophie, Sophie, he was, he was a Brit and he spoke with a Cockney. He was moving to LA and he said, I'm going to go do A&R on the West Coast because the West Coast is blowing up in the early 90s. I think you should apply for my job in New York. I thought, really? Shit, okay. So I went and I interviewed with Barry Weiss who ran Jive Records. Incredibly smart, <laughs> so good at his job. And he gave me the job. Easy. <sighs> yes. So <laughs> I, w- what I'll say, Peter, is that it was it was pretty easy for me to get the job, but I think the biggest obstacle to doing the job was my own self-doubt, right? So me looking at myself saying, you're a middle-class, college-educated, Korean-Canadian, French literature major. Again, honors. <laughs> is it even okay that you are 
being given a job as kind of a gatekeeper to a culture which you didn't create, which is not yours. And I think what helped me get over that was how warmly and deeply and openly I was embraced by hip-hop. I think if there was resistance, I think if people were looking askance at me, and some did, but so few, people were saying, oh, you know, what's this Asian lady doing? You know, I got that a little bit, but far more prevalent. The response was the response. Come on in. Come on in. And this is still, its you say it's, hip-hop is blowing up, but it's still a niche mm-hmm. music. It's still considered urban or mm-hmm. black. People yeah. are aware that suburban white kids are listening to it, but it's yeah. still sort of considered an anomaly. It's yeah. not dominating the culture. Probably, I think that made them probably more open than they would have been today if you're trying to break in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that if I tried to get into the industry today, well, number one, I, people would just think that I'm too old. But... I think that it would be much more difficult, much, much more difficult. First of all, that club scene doesn't exist anymore, as far as I can tell. I don't think you go to a club and and you have, oh, my God, here's a microcosm of the whole hip-hop scene. I don't think that happens anymore. It's also not in New York, right? It's it's, it's It's spread out. all over the place. And really, I would go to Atlanta if I really wanted to be kind of in the thick of it. And, you know, clubs to me now, from what I can see when I go out, it's bottle service. It's reserved tables. It's guys, like, just trying to look really cool. It's girls wearing really short skirts and really high heels. And I don't care about any of that, but it's not enjoyable for me because it's not about the music anymore. When I was going out in the late 80s and early 90s, the one fulcrum around which the whole community spun was music. I think that in the late 80s, people still wore short skirts and tried to look cool. But we can fact check that during the break here. Well, but you go. don't think that they were more into the music and danced more? I don't we know. Let's, all dance. Let's take a break. You and I will debate okay. offline. We'll come right back. <laughs> let's take this offline, Peter. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll be right back. I lied. We didn't debate offline. We're going to have a debate out here. We're back with Sophia Chang. We're, we arm wrestled. Yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to make this. Things were better in the old days and they're different now, but they are different. Because I think, like we've established, it'd be very hard for you to break into this business. But you did. How did you meet the Wu-Tang Clan? When I did A&R at Jive, I got the demo, the three-song demo, on a Maxell 60-minute cassette tape. Google it. And there were three songs. It was Protect Your Neck, Tears, and Method Man. And Protect Your Neck had already been circulating, so there was already a buzz around it. So, you know, that, that cassette comes to the top of your pile. And I listened to it, and it was like... <laughs> but RZA being the entrepreneurial genius that he is, he asked for what's called a non-exclusive deal. Now, a non-exclusive deal was unheard of, and I actually don't know that anybody's ever gotten it since he did, but he did. How does a non-exclusive deal work? So if I sign the Beatles, if any of them choose to do solos, albums, I have the first right of refusal, meaning I can say— Capital Records can say, you got to work for us. Sorry, we have the choice, John, or Paul, Ringo. And what RZA demanded—now, there were nine guys— he said, no, you can compete, but you don't just do The Wu-Tang Clan will sign with you, Jive Records, but if ODB yes. wants to do something on his own. We have, the option, we have yeah. the option to shop it. I think maybe it was a matching deal or something. Nobody would touch that deal, not with a 10-foot pole. The only person that touched it was Steve Rifkin, who had Loud Records, and I think it was the right decision on his part because Loud Records was kind of on the come up, and I think that he knew very clearly that if I sign Wu-Tang Clan, yes, there is this— There is the risk that I'm not going to be able to put out all their solo albums, but what Wu-Tang will do for my label 
will be tremendous because if you think about it, I don't, and I think that this is still the case. If I have Wu Tang Clan on my label, Wu Tang is a talent magnet. Right. right. So it's not just the revenue that I get out of selling Wu-Tang Clan albums. It's that I now, I'm in the game. Right. So there are other examples of this, where right? You do a deal like that that no one else will do because you have to. And because if you don't do it, you don't go anywhere. Yes. So it's not the ideal deal. You take it because it's going to yeah. get you to the next step. And it's a calculation you make. And you figure out, okay, here's the risk. Here's the return. And you know what? I'm banking on the return. So you don't sign. I don't sign them. However, then I, then a, a month later, I get the demo tape for the Gravediggers, and the Gravediggers was the group that RZA started with Prince Paul, who was the amazing genius producer behind De La Soul. This is the their three horror, best De La Soul records. Yes, this is their horrorcore group. Now this group I can sign. So I set up a meeting with him immediately. But really, what's at the top of my mind, more even more so than wanting to sign the Gravediggers, was. I want to meet this man. Because by this time, we all knew that he was the abbot. We all knew that he was the brain trust and the one that really kind of created the ethos and the mythology around We're Wu-Tang. talking about Prism. Oh, you want to meet RZA. Uh, uh, yeah, I want to meet RZA. So he comes to my office. We go for lunch. We talk about the parameters of the Gravediggers deal. And then, I, and then I fan out and I'm asking him all sorts of questions about Wu-Tang Clan. But the thing that I learned really, really quickly about RZA is that his intellectual, spiritual, cultural curiosity might be greater than anybody I know. So he is a rapper who has now traveled the world many times over. And when he goes to a town... He doesn't just say, hey, where's the, you know, closest, whatever, American restaurant? Can you yeah. just make sure that I get my this, my get? He will go out into the world, and he wants to meet the people. He wants to visit whatever the, you know, religious centers are and stuff like that. And I think that's incredible. So I, I figured that, I figured out really quickly when I met him, this is somebody with an expansive world view. And I was really, really impressed. And also that he was an incredibly smart business person. So you meet the guy you want to meet. He's, yep. he's as great as you think he's going to be. Yeah. And then how do you end up doing business with these guys? So then you he, don't manage the group. You that's end up right. managing individual So then he introduces me to the rest of the guys. The last one that I meet is Old Dirty Bastard. And Dirty then at some point kind of knocks me off my feet and asks me to manage him. And because that was the been, first— you've been sort of hanging out with That's them, right, because right? So, I'm going to the studio all the time. I even go to L.A. because at this point I'm not working at Jive anymore. I have this consultancy deal with Warner Brothers. Thank you, Michael Austin and Mo Austin and Lenny Warrenker. I have the freedom and I now have enough money that I travel to L.A. to go with Wu-Tang on their first promotional tour of L.A. So I'm with them all the time. I'm with them in the studio, you know, when they do shows on tour and You're stuff like that. You're hanging out with them in a, in a professional but non-professional way. They're not paying you for your for That's your right. There, so so there's, there's nothing transactional about this, uh -huh. right? I'm not dating any of them. I'm not granting them access to anything. They're not, I, I don't manage any of them. I, I haven't signed any of them, none of that. And then ODB asks me to manage him, and it's the first time I've been asked to manage. And I thought, yeah, okay. And that was the first member of Wu-Tang that I managed. So I think you were the first music manager we've had here, um, okay. former music manager. Recovering. Current, recovering. Recovering. Let's be very clear, Sophia Chang what, is not in that game anymore. What don't does, send me your SoundCloud and YouTube links, thank you. What does a music manager do? Don Passman, uh, who has been a music business attorney for years, put out a book decades ago now called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. I think it is now in its ninth printing. 
Anybody that wants to get into the business, when they say they want to ask me my advice, I say just buy that book. Buy that book. You that still bo- you still working? I think you absolutely. Yeah. And what Don Passman says in his book is: think of your manager as the CEO of your enterprise. And so what I would say that I do is that I oversee every aspect of my artist's career. But I'm also the person that keeps all the trains running on time and I keep all of the lines of communication clear and synchronized because you don't want duplicative efforts, right? And you also don't want anybody to drop the ball. But what I get to do as an artist manager as opposed to an A&R person, so an A&R person, the purview is pretty narrow. I sign Peter Kafka, let's make a record, Maybe I help you find producers. Maybe work, I help you, you with the your sequencing. Client, you, your employer is the label. Yes. Uh, you you do deals with the bands, but you're you're working. You for are beholden giant, to right? the label. Right. That's right. You're trying to make money for them. Right. But so if I work at the label, then my only purview in your career is your record. If I am the manager, now I get to talk about everything else. So let me give you an example. When I manage Jizza. Okay, when I first started managing him, I said, have you ever thought about lecturing? And he said, you know, so if I've been asked, but I've just never kind of gotten around to it. And I said, would you do it? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And so I got him his first lecture at Harvard. And my what I imagined was at, the, at that time, he was probably 44. And I thought, you know, there will inevitably come a time when he's not going to want to be on tour anymore because it's grueling. And I would love him to have this ancillary, the secondary income stream that could be robust enough, and it is now a robust business. And I'm really proud that I did that, but it also took working with an artist that was humble enough to say, yeah, I'll try something that I haven't done before. So you're creating new business opportunities. Yes. You're managing the ones that come yes. in. You are making sure that the whole team is in sync. You're generally Very important. taking a percentage of their income, right? As yes, you see. yes. And then— um, has that business changed over the years, or is that still is well, I, it still I, more or less the same uh, sort of— There are a couple of things that have changed. You know, the one thing I also want to say to anybody who's an aspiring manager is that it is not for everybody. It's a lot of babysitting, right? It's a lot of babysitting. When people ask me what I used to do, I would say, I used to manage talent, a.k.a. I used to babysit. There was a lot of cajoling. There's a lot of cajoling. There is a lot of calling 10 times for them to pick up the phone once. There is a lot of— We uh, need your you cars to be outside, Your there. car's outside. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And many of my friends are like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you did it. And frankly, like I said, I never want to do it again. So the annoying and the banal part of it was offset by being able to work with incredible storytellers and help them tell their story. Um, I also would say to anybody that wants to manage, learn how to negotiate, learn how to read a contract. I just read a contract before I came upstairs, my own contract. Learn how to advocate and you cannot be afraid to advocate for your artist. So if I manage you, Peter, you are not going to every meeting. You should be like, no, so you go do that meeting. But you have to trust that you and I are in sync enough and that I understand you well enough that I can go be your proxy, that I can speak on your behalf. And what that takes on my part is that it takes a certain curiosity about you. I have to have an empathy. I have to truly believe in and be passionate about your voice and your art and then you can feel comfortable like, you know what, Soph? You got it. You got it. You, you go take this. care of this. Yeah. You're my filter. Yes. You're my advocate. Yeah. You're going to find new things for me. You're also going to tell people, no, that's not a that's fit That's right. For us. You're my Kevlar, too. 
right? I was always the bad cop. Like, even if an artist came to me and said, hey, so if I just told so-and-so I was going to do so-and-so, I'm never going to do that, I then had to take it upon myself and say, you know, Craig, I know that Peter told you that he would do this, but I have to tell you that as his manager, I have this, this, this going on, and he, and I, I'm sorry, but he just can't do it. So this is all pre-Napster. This is all pre-digital. This is before uh, file sharing sort of blows up the business. How much do you think the management business has changed sort of now that people can't really depend on an album deal or record sales for income? Well, when I managed Jizza, that was after all of that. But what, uh, what what's different now, yes, is that the money model has completely inverted. So it used to be that artists, their main revenue stream was album sales. Yep. And... They were making a lot of, the labels were making tons of money. I mean, printing up CDs and selling them for $25. And how much does it cost to go? Yep. I don't know. <laughs> and so now, and so what we used to call ancillary revenue streams, touring, merchandise, sponsorships, those are now the primary. Right. Right. And so artists would often go on tour to support album sales. Albums are now released to support tours. And I understand it's a little problematic, but I completely understand the idea of the 360 deal at a record company. So the 360 deal was an invention that came about after the advent of digital when the whole model collapsed. I mean, think about it. And this is what the label said. We want to participate. We don't want to just be your person who releases music. We don't want to be in the releasing music business solely. We want to participate We want to in participate in 360 in degrees your of your income. Because right. guess what? Peter, I sign you. I give you $200,000 advance. I spend $250,000 to make your album. I spend another $300,000 promoting it. Well, I'm seven fifty, dollars and I'm three quarters of a million dollars in. And I know I'm not going to sell those albums. How do I make my money? Well, I built your career. I put your album out. I put you on a promo tour. I made your videos. I got you on the radio. So now you get to go on tour and make millions of dollars and I don't participate? I don't think so. So... There is a lot of resistance to it, and again, I understand that it feels a little draconian and onerous, but I completely understand the idea behind it. And so the 360 deal is different. And managers, unless you're managing somebody who is huge, it's really hard to make money. When people come to me and say, I want to be an artist manager, I'm like, you better be ready to babysit, you better be ready to be broke, and you better be ready to be frustrated, and you better be passionate. Because if you're not passionate, then what is going to get you through that? It seems like the better way to do it, if you want to make money, is to be the attorney, right? Then you're just papering a deal, take a percentage. You'd have to do less babysitting. Yeah, but then you have to have a law degree. Yeah. That's and what, it's not as boring. interesting. And it's so dry. Yeah. Plus, you can only name one famous music lawyer. Yeah. Maybe and, two. <laughs> and how, how although, although I'll say this, that's an interesting point. Attorneys now are getting involved in deal making, not papering deals, yep. not just negotiating the deals, but I met with some attorneys some years ago that said, you know, the model has changed a little bit, Sophia, and they actually act almost in a quasi-managerial position. You know, we have, you know, you know, we have our tentacles out far and wide. So we might be able to bring you X, Y, or Z as an opportunity. Okay. Was there a moment where you said, I am done with the music business? Do you remember that? Well, so you're a recovering manager. So when I when I met Yan Ming, my ex, and started training in martial arts, I didn't say I was done with the music business. I just did that. But now, 
Because then you came back. Because <laughs> then I came back. But having written my memoir, yeah. having chased a bunch of rappers to have them in my audio book, I was done with the music business in October of 2017 when I told Joey Badass, shout out to Joey, I love you, I love you, I love you. When I told Joey Badass that I couldn't run Pro Era Records anymore because I knew that I had to write this book. Because this is what I knew. Whether or not I get a deal, whether or not the book sells, I have to write this book. It was... I guess as compelling as it is for artists when they say, I've got to put out this album, Peter. I, you know, I got the story. I got to tell it. It's I got to tell it. Yeah. And it's time. And that was the last job that I have. And I never, ever imagined that I'm going to do it again. I don't, I don't want to do it anymore because now I understand that, you know, I call my, I call my memoir a coming of age story. That at 54, that what I'm supposed to be doing is sharing my story and in so doing help other people. Are you mentoring people? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not accepting any more mentees. No, I so have, don't call Sophia. It, please don't call me. I have several, and I am very devoted to them. And part of the reason that I wrote my memoir is because I have had so many people ask me to mentor them, and I simply don't have the bandwidth. But I tell you what I am going to be doing is I'm going to be doing public speaking. Put a mic in my hand. I'll how rock do, an arena. How do you find a mentor? So people have asked me this a lot, and, and one of the soapboxes that I stand on is that it is really critical that women of color, that people mentor women of color in particular, because there is this huge divide between who gets mentored and who even asks for it, and even more profound, who even knows that it's available as a resource. So anecdotally, I've asked a lot of women of color, many, many, many of my girlfriends have not been mentored. And I think, wow, imagine if you'd been mentored, you'd be ruling the world. So how do you find a mentor? You either look within your company and you look at the people that you admire and you approach them and say, I think you're really smart. I think I could learn a lot from you. Would you please mentor me? And if not within your company, then look within your industry and say, oh, you know what? So-and-so, she's a, such a good litigator, and she works in this particular field of law that I find amazing, and you reach out to her. And it's like the same thing as with the networking thing, right? You, maybe you don't get a response. Maybe you get a no. And do you the think downside you, is so Do you so think little. you say, I want to be mentored by you, or is, mm-hmm. or is that too formal for someone? As opposed to? I don't know. Oh, no, I think you come right out yeah. and say it. So I, I'm thinking I, people who have helped me, and we never said, I want to be your mentee. Oh, my, oh okay, so— my relationship with Michael, there was never a name put to it. Yeah. But if you ask me specifically, how do you get a mentor? This is how I recommend doing it. Don't I will also it. say, and this is really important, that it is not critical that your mentor share be exactly the same race and gender as you. So if a woman of color comes to me and says, Sophia, there's this white man that wants to mentor me, I would never say don't do it. Would it be ideal if my mentor was a Korean-Canadian child of immigrants and we could share, and that we have such a shared experience? Sure. But the truth of the matter is the people that are in the positions of power, the people who are the gatekeepers, the people who sit at the center, who are at the tables where the decisions are made, the vast majority of them are white men. So get in where you fit in is kind of how I feel. Go do it. So Sophia's lessons for you, the person listening to this podcast, move to New York or the place you need to be. Introduce yourself. Network, stick out network, your hand. network. Do not be afraid. Find your mentor. First and last name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got it all? Uh, find a mentor. And I think that another really important lesson is try to be as fearless as possible. And, and if, it gets easier. What if you're not a fearless person? I think that most— Can you teach yourself to be fearless? I think that you can get better at it. I think you can. 
I, I mean, I remember when, how old, you said your children are nine and ten, nine, nine and eleven? Nine and eleven, yeah. So when my son was four, he was super shy. He was kind of the boy that like held onto my yeah. leg and didn't want to say hi to anybody. He went to kindergarten. That boy was the mayor of Brooklyn Tech. It is the largest high school in America. There are 6,100 kids there. Everybody knew him. He just blossomed. Now, shy, you would think, is a, a, a personality trait. Yeah. Right, and he grew out of it in the same way that he grew out of his asthma. So I think that you can learn to be less fearless. And again, it's like anything: yoga, swimming, baking. The more you do it, the easier it gets. So just practice. It's experiential, like everything in life. And if all else fails, wear a T-shirt that describes yourself as the baddest bitch in the room. So that way, you have to be. I actually that have person. these for sale on Bonfire. Okay, can I wear one of those? Yes, of course you can. I actually want am men I, to wear I, them. Okay. All right. I, I will buy one from you. Thank you. I tell my audience to go buy your book on Audible. It's the only place you can find it. Yes. Sophia Chang, baddest pitch in the room. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. And hi, Brooke. I miss you and I love you. Special thanks to Jelani. Jelani, thank you so Sophia much here. for having me. Jelani, Jelani who grew up in Crown Heights and is a big hip-hop fan. That's thank Jelani's you very much. special shout-out. Okay? <laughs> thanks to you guys for listening. See you next week.